0: I'm Evan Yu, and you're listening to The Changelog.
1: Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stokoviak. This is episode 184, and on today's show, Jared and I are joined by Evan Yu talking about Vue.js. We had four awesome sponsors for this show CodeShip, OpBeat, Braintree, and also DigitalOcean. Our first sponsor is CodeShip. Got an awesome ebook out there totally for free. It's a 21-page deep dive into why containers and Docker are the future. This free ebook is about the rise of the container stack and why Docker and its ecosystem and community play such a big part in it. Now, when you download this ebook, you'll also get access to three other super secret ebooks. So go check this out, resources.codeship.com ebooks. I'll put the full URL in our show notes, so check that out. And now on to the show. Hey everyone, we're back. We got an awesome guest with us today. Evan Yu is joining us. Uh, Jared, it's kind of interesting because this uh, show kind of kicked off with the very first issue submitted to ping and that was that was Evan. Right, yeah. That was a long time ago though. That was like forever ago,
2: basically. So yeah. he's, he's our very first ping, what'd he say? He said, "Can you cover
1: View in <laughs> uh, Chainsaw Weekly?" We did, and uh, we were happy Effective to do move. so. Move,
2: I think. And recently, yeah. he wrote us again and said, "Hey, let's let's talk about you on the podcast." Which you know, sometimes it's kind of hard to approach people and you know ask if uh, we can talk about your thing. But uh, he made a compelling argument. He he listed multiple reasons why it's interesting, and then I said, "Yeah, that actually does sound pretty interesting. Let's do it."
1: Let's do it, and so. Evan Evan Yu, you created Vue.js. Yep. Uh, Before we dive deep into that, obviously we're going to talk about that quite extensively. Um, It's always interesting to kind of dive a little further into our guests. So tell Mm -hmm. us a bit about yourself. You know, how do you introduce yourself? What do you do?
0: Right. So um, I'm Evan Yu. I currently work at Meteor as a core dev, and Vue.js is my personal project. And before joining Meteor, I was uh, at Google. I worked at Google Creative Lab for a bit over two years. And before that, I, uh, I went to Parsons uh, Parsons School for Design. I uh, went to a master's program called MFADT, which is Master of Fine Arts in Design Technology, which is a fun program.
1: Wow, okay. Yeah. So that kind of makes sense why you say design, code, and things in between. Yep. So can you unpack that for us a bit more?
0: Uh, Sure. So I started out doing some design on my own when i was in college i studied something completely unrelated to what i'm doing right now Uh, but i have always been interested in designing and just trying to build the things that i designed and it was really fun and so my a lot of my time was spent playing with flash and trying to you know just crank out things that i think is creative and fun and then that led to sort of a situation where I don't know what I was going to do when I graduated um, and then I was like, okay, I need to find some place where I can combine two of my interests you know design and code and that that was um so I looked around and Parsons had this type of program which looked pretty fun, so I went there and ended up um ended up doing a lot of uh, code experiments on the web and then Somehow, uh, that got me, got me the opportunity to work at Google Creative Lab, which was also pretty fun. Had a lot of crazy experimental stuff in there. Um, yeah, that's and and I started working on Vue when I was at Google Creative Lab, and that's gradually evolving to what it is today. But it started like more than two years ago. It was a really small experiment.
1: Wow. Okay. Then. So this is a a two year thing that you've been. I guess uh, that was two years ago when you started working at Google, Google Labs?
0: Uh, that's almost two, uh, three years ago when I started. Uh, I started on gotcha. Vue around two years ago.
2: So, okay. Yes. Yeah. Did any of your crazy experiments at Google Labs make it out into the wild?
0: Um. So it, I kind of want to clarify, like, the place I worked at is called Google Creative Labs. It's, like, not the Google ah, okay. X, right? So Google Labs is yet another thing which is no longer in existence. Right. Uh, Google X is this high tech like branch, and Google Creative Lab is more like um, uh, half marketing, half uh, UI prototyping. So we do a lot of uh, internal prototypes. Uh, we did the UX prototyping for Google Glass. We did a bunch of stuff for the Google iOS search app. We were also um, uh, we were one of the responsible party behind the Google uh, the rebranding in twenty fifteen.
1: Oh, that was a big deal too. That that rebranding. This, so I mean, I think it went over well. Everybody likes it. Yeah,
0: you know? It was uh, it was pretty interesting because uh, we actually have been pushing for quite a while, but uh, it, it actually went out after I have already left Creative Lab. So it was uh, it was pretty fun to see something you touched upon, you know, just going live after so long. You almost forget about it.
1: Why don't you take us further back, like before View, before Google. You know, how did you kind of get into what you're doing? Give us the backstory.
0: Sure. So as I mentioned, I did a lot of uh, flash when I was uh, still in high school, I believe. Um, I have always been just fascinated by those, you know, really flashy websites, uh, just fancy stuff. And I want to figure out how to make them. I believe my first web page was built with front page. Uh, I I basically copied the markup from just a random website I saw and tried to mold it into what I wanted it to look like. Uh, that was that was a fun experience. But at that time, I have no idea what's underneath. Like, I can't read the markup. I can't really read... I, di- I didn't even know what those script tags did. Right, right. <clears throat> so, um, and later on, I started playing with Flash because uh, it just felt a bit more visual than... Than front page, you know? And at that time, it was still using, I believe, ActionScript 2 or something? Okay. Uh, it was a really primitive scripting language. I, all the things I could do with it was just, like, play, pause, go to this frame, go to that frame, um, doing small animations. And then Adobe released ActionScript 3, which was more like a real program programming language. So I had to uh, sort of step up the game and actually learn proper how to how to write code uh, but it was a it was nothing like a real like computer science background thing it's more like i want to build something so i had to learn how to do it process So i mostly picked up all the programming stuff by myself
1: I gotta ask you because I, I it's not often we have somebody who loves flash or at least came from that i guess we all kind of came from that era but i i can't say myself i've done a lot with it but uh if i say too advanced what does that mean to you
0: oh yeah i remember that studio they have right? all these crazy websites yeah i think i i had a uh one of their versions like version 2 or something like i i ble- I, I remember they built like multiple versions of their website every time it's like a completely different layout different intro animations yeah
1: yeah, those, those were crazy times. The art was so amazing, right? Like, that's what always fascinated yep. me about, like, what was Flash in that era was, like, there's a, a very particular font, you know, all these, like, pixel yep. fonts and, you know, and this this artistic style to it. Like, it had a cool thing going for it. I kind of miss a little bit of that. What about you? I too. Yeah. Uh, I think it's... Especially to Advanced Dog, because they're the best. Like, there's nobody better than that.
0: Yeah, they're they're probably like one of a kind in doing this type of like flash-based animations. I I believe I even have a um a copy of a source file of of one of the one of their sites. It's basically reverse engineered or something so that I can look into it and like copy some of the tweens and some keyframes out of it to use it in my own projects.
1: Yeah. Wow, that's crazy, man. So roots go back to Flash and even to Advanced. That's really cool. I, I'm I'm impressed. I I don't know many people who know of them, and
2: yeah. when you do, you know they love them because they're really the best yeah. way they've done. Too Advanced mean nothing to me, Adam. So <laughs> I was I was starting to look at Two Life Crew stuff once you said that. So I'm kind of off on a tangent over here. That, that means more to me than Too Advanced. Although Too Advanced. Dot com right now is just like a completely black page so maybe it's because i don't have flash and they're still rocking it all <laughs> i mean it's like seriously just complete blackness In in a modern i don't doubt it
1: yeah, i must have flash installed i, I mean, don't know why in
2: chrome because that's just safari which
1: oh yeah i'm in chrome so in chrome it works fine i'm not
0: sure if they still wait it's two advanced right
2: yeah, the number two yeah, two, 2 dot com, like the number two. Oh, yeah, these guys are old school. It's still loading, like up to ninety, like with a counter on how much it's loaded. That's a completely yep. flash website.
0: Yeah, it's still pre-flash. Wow,
2: that's amazing.
1: I don't want to go too deep into that, but I mean, I never, we've never had anybody on the show that knew of Two Advanced, so I, I had wow. to drop that question for you to see if you were familiar. I'm surprised with them with the first one.
2: Copyright two thousand eleven. Yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering if they've moved on. They probably have moved on. Well, I think the web has moved on. are so right. To. Right. They're in the dust. So I guess we can move on as well to Vue, which is uh, kind of the onus for the conversation here. Um, Vue.js, now that's V-U-E uh, for those listening, not V-I-E-W, which is probably what you'd assume. Um, is a, I'm not going to call it yet another uh, client-side framework. I was going to make jokes about, you know, it's been a few <laughs> weeks since we've had a, JS framework on the show, Adam, but it actually has been longer. It's been uh, all the way back to 160 in June was ampersand. And then previous to that, Uh if you count React, I guess, uh, which isn't, we know that's actually a view layer, um, 149. So, you know, once every three or four months, usually, we bring up um, JavaScript front end tooling. And it's about time. So let's talk about Vue. It seems like it's kind of the silent assassin that I hadn't personally heard of, but Uh is growing in popularity and seems to have quite a bit of merit. Um, You said you started it when you were at Google Creative Labs. Why did you uh, start it originally?
0: Okay. So primary reason was I was looking for something that's specifically good for what I was doing. Uh, We did a lot of UI prototyping and those projects usually involve a lot of um, interactive content, interactive UI, but at the same time we had to do it really fast because the design changed really often. We crank out ideas very, very fast. So the pace kind of demands a solution that just makes some of the common UI tasks easy, but also don't overwhelming, overwhelmingly complex. Right? Uh, we were using Angular for some of the projects, and we just felt um, I, I really like the data buying parts. Uh, it, makes, it makes your UI more declarative, but at the same time, Angular is complex. It introduces a lot of concepts that I simply didn't need at all. And I felt there ought to be something simpler but provide the same benefits of a data-driven view. So, and also, it was it was uh, partly also because I was curious on how Angular implemented it. It's, it was somewhat a research project where I want to, you know, just dig into under the hood and see what is going on. How did they do it, and sort of figure out what I can do. Maybe I can build something like that too. Um, yeah, um so it's it's half experiment, half out of the you know the need to use something. For, for the projects I was working on.
2: And if you had to describe it in a landscape of the current set of frameworks that just throw out Angular, Ember, React with Redux, and such things, Aurelia, Ampersand, um, which kind of is, you know, you can lay those out sort of in a continuum of like lightweight to heavyweight and like batteries included to more library-based. Where would Vue fit into that landscape? Uh. It's probably closest to React in that aspect. So it's more like
0: Vue.js core is the V in the MV star system. Uh, it's strictly just the view layer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it concerns itself with, you You grab some state, you declare a view and you render something onto the page. That's the job it does. Um, but, but at the same time, uh, so, so it started out as just a core library, and it intends to stay that way. Uh, it's it's really just a drop-in type of thing. Like in in that aspect, it's even a bit simpler to get started with than React because uh, with React you sort of need to do some JSX transpilation to get get off the ground. But mm-hmm. with Vue, it's literally just grab it off the CDN and you can just get up and going. Um, and then when you reach a so, so VueCore packs a bunch of things. First is data binding. Then there is the component system. And it um, includes some uh, transition effect helper uh, to make it easier to build dynamic stuff. Um, but, but out of that, it doesn't really include routing. It doesn't include any sort of opinionated data layer. It doesn't concern itself with how you bundle or structure your app. Uh, it's um, it stays out of your way if you simply want to use it as a, as a view layer. Uh-huh. But similar to the React ecosystem, there's you know there's React Router, there's Redux. So uh, VJS sort of provides you with uh, an optional view router. It has um, a set of opinionated build setup. If you use Browserify and Webpack, then you can use some transforms to to write your view components in a very web component like format which in a single file is sort of encapsulate this encapsulate the style the template and the script for a your component
2: mm-hmm.
0: so it, it kind of grows out to a more opinionated framework like experience if you you're into that but you can it's totally optional
2: so what's the what's the sweet spot i mean for you would you when you're building something on view you're using all the components are you using view just for the view layer Um, how is it supposed to be used? Right, so
0: I think the beauty of it is it it doesn't really force you into one specific way of using it. Um, The point being, uh, a lot of people recently in the Laravel community are picking up Vue, and for a lot of them, their primary experience is building fully backend backend rendered apps. Uh, Most of their stuff is rendered by the server side and just spit out to the front end. But they want to have interactivity. They want to have um, sort of like a mini SPA on each page, and and full-blown frameworks like Angular or Ember doesn't really like fit into that need well. Mm-hmm. Like it, it feels like a, such an overkill when you just want to add simple reactivity to uh, to a server-side render page. Um, so. It, so they, a lot of them just use Vue for that specific purpose, right? You just grab it from the CDN and you can just get going. Um, but when you, maybe when you build the next app, you want to grow the client-side presence of, or you just want to, it, it, or maybe it's just a different app that demands a different UX, which an SPA was suited better, then they can, you know, grab the additional parts and they can still use Vue, but they can build a an app that's more, uh, single page oriented, more um, fully structured uh, as a client side app. So, so the same core principle applies in both situations, which I think is is the power of, you know, this type of uh, how how the framework presents itself. You can pick what you need to achieve what you want.
2: Very cool, and it seems like you just reached 1.0 here recently. Um, In preparation for this, you sent us a link to an excellent post called uh, Vue.js, a reintroduction, um, which highlights uh, some of what Vue offers and compares and contrasts it with the frameworks that we've been talking about. You have one, two, three, four, five major points there. I think what we'd like to do is take a quick break here from a sponsor. And then on the other side of the break what we'll do is kind of talk through those bullet points use them as kind of waypoints that we can use to dive into other conversations about view in detail. Sound good? Yeah. All right, let's do that. We'll be right back. Guess what,
1: everyone? Opbeat is announcing their NoJS beta right here right now exclusively to our listeners. OpBeat combines performance metrics, release tracking, and error logging into a single simple service, and with all of your data in the same place, they're able to do smart things with it and help you make wiser choices. OpBeat integrates with your codebase through Git and makes monitoring and debugging your production apps much faster. It's free for an unlimited number of users, and until now has only been available for Django and Flask. But now they're launching a private beta for Node.js and sharing it with our listeners first. So go check it out and sign up for the beta. Head to opbeat.com slash changelog. That's O-P-B-E-A-T
2: dot com slash changelog. All right, we are back speaking with Evan Yu about his awesome JS framework, Vue.js. Evan, you got... Five points here in this blog post, which we will definitely link up in the show notes. Um, Point one is reactivity, in which you say that keeping the state and the view in sync is hard, or is it you begin to describe the reactivity in Vue.js? Can you take us through that?
0: Sure. Um, So reactivity in Vue.js is uh, one of the most unique things that I I haven't seen a similar implementation in any other framework, I believe, so the, the core of it is Vue.js converts plain JavaScript objects uh, using some ES5 features called Object-Defined Property and makes all these properties reactive. So when you uh, when you retrieve a property or when you mutate a property, Vue.js knows under the hood, and so it, it's able to track the dependencies uh, and be able to... Um, Reactively perform DOM manipulations for you. So, let's say when you have a when you have an object with a property A, and you use VJS's um, the the templating system to bind a uh, say a mustache tag to the property. And so once you do that, uh, the the view and the, your data is essentially linked. Uh, and when whenever you change the data the view just updates and it just becomes fully automatic um so instead of instead of min- mutating some data and calling a re-render uh you just you just change the data so there's no need to call re-render any any time uh and in comparison there's um some other frameworks that uses this a similar model-based mechanism where uh you You have reactive model objects uh, and you bind to your view and you can mutate them. But the the thing is, none of them actually use this plain plain, uh, uh, JavaScript object syntax. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, for example, in Knockout, you have to create uh, ko.observables. And in Ember, you have to create Ember objects. Um, But in Vue, it's just uh, plain plain JavaScript objects, like you can uh, you can do an AJAX call, you get some JSON, you parse it into plain objects, and you shove into a view instance and the view updates.
2: So, like you said, a lot of these uh, frameworks require you to use like Ember.create object or something and to use their specific objects which have observability built into them. Right. Um, and you have to use getters and setters in certain ways in some cases. I assumed you were using object.observe or some sort of new feature, but you're using define property which Mm-hmm. Is available in like every major browser, right?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's available down to IE nine. So Vue doesn't support IE eight and below, but uh, anything above IE nine is fully supported.
2: I don't think that's problematic. I saw just uh, today that Microsoft, as of like January, <laughs> is yeah. deprecating all the way back to IE ten. So eight, nine, and ten will be officially unsupported, which is nice. Um, it's good stuff. It is keep moving it forward um so hmm are there any drawbacks to this method it seems like if it was you know just use define property it seems like the ember team would have been using this feature it seems like you know um in knockout they would have been just using define property because plain old objects is easier it is more straightforward why how do you accomplish this
0: Right. Um. I believe the one of the reasons other frameworks don't don't pick it is, um, either it has to support IE8, because object defined property is a feature that is unshimmable in IE8. Okay. Like you, there's no way to shim it if the engine doesn't support it. So if you are to support IE8, then this this mechanism is just out of the question. Um. But if you are willing to drop support for IE eight, then this is totally feasible. Um, so there is some. So it's a it's a technical, very technical comparison with say a um, Angular's mechanism, which is dirty checking, or mm-hmm. a React's mechanism, which is virtual DOM diffing. Um, I would categorize the two into the the pull based mechanisms and the push based mechanism. So all the um, like knockout or Ember or Vue are sort of in the in the push camp because when the change happens, uh, the reactive model will push the changes to the view to to automatically trigger or updates in the view. And in comparison, Angular and React both are pull based systems. Essentially, you need to give the system a signal saying, "Hey, something might have changed." And now you need to... Uh, so in Angular, you need to iterate over all the watchers to do the dirty checking. And in React, you render a new virtual DOM tree mm-hmm. and diff it with the old one. But these things don't happen automatically. You sort of have to give the system a signal. And in Angular, it's um, it's somewhat baked into event handlers. So Angular does it for you. But when you are... Say in Angular 1, when you are in a timeout, you have to manually... Uh, call scope digest or scope apply in order to like tell angular something has changed right and in react you have to call set state Uh, if you directly mutate your state there's no way for react and angular to know it has changed the the comparison is that um, push based mechanism have better runtime performance but it has a slightly higher uh, initialization cost because you have to set up all the observation, objects, the watchers, the dependency tracking. Like you have to do all of that at boot up. Uh, you have to be, the system has to warm up and be ready for any uh, future changes. But once that's set up, all the hot updates are really fast and efficient because uh, if you change one single property, then only uh, the views that's interested in that property would get notified and, and get updated. But in a pool-based system, because it's somewhat um, brute force, uh, obviously you, you, there's a lot of optimization in there, but the essence of it is we don't really know what has changed. We just know something has changed. So we have to you know, either go through all the watchers or go through the whole virtual DOM tree to figure out what exactly has changed. So um, you do a lot of extra work when something has changed in order to to update the view. So let's say you have a huge app and you are changing only a small piece of state. Um, the the push-based uh, implementations would probably take a bit longer to start up, but subsequent changes would be more efficient, but a pull-based system uh, could start up relatively faster, but um, it's its hot updates would have performance implications. Uh, and it depends on how how the implementation works and how, uh, how optimizable it is, um, so dirty checking is hard to optimize, but virtual DOM is somewhat uh, more optimizable because um, how in React you can implement a per component method called shoot component update to sort of you know short circuit some of the virtual DOM diffing, but it's still a manual process.
2: Mm. So would you say that view is neither push nor pull then?
0: Uh, it is in the push camp, okay. Yeah, I might have. No, I just realized I might have gone into too much technical details. No, but,
2: that no, that's yeah. good. Okay, go deep, please. Sh- sure. <laughs> so, what about uh, so you're working with plain JavaScript objects? Um, obviously, you have properties, and properties can be functions. Can you then observe functions?
0: Um. So, if you want to, yes, you can. Um. You can put functions in your state, mm-hmm. but the the general advice is, uh. Prefer to, because all the reactive parts in your app, uh, essentially, especially in a Vue.js app, it, it, that represents the state of your application, right? Um, and it's good if your state is playing objects that's serializable and persistable, because functions are not really serializable. Like you wouldn't put functions in your, say a, a JSON like request like when you get some data from your server, the the response wouldn't contain functions, sure. right? So, um, most of the case, you kind of want to think of these reactive objects as things you would want to, uh, persist to the server or things that basically describe what your app state is like instead of, um, putting arbitrary objects in it. Uh, so view is a little bit opinionated in that aspect because, um, We want to use these reactive objects as the underlying source of truth to drive the view. So um, you want to keep it abstract, keep it clean and simple.
2: So this offers two-way data binding in the sense of if you update it in the model, it updates the view. And if you update it in the view, it updates the model, correct?
0: Yeah, so view implements two-way data binding. But in my opinion, two-way data binding is kind of a, a word that's misunderstood by a lot. Uh, because two-way data binding, in its essence, is just syntax sugar. What ha- what really happens under the hood is the user uh, imp- has triggered some input events. So the event triggers view to modify the the state, which is the object. And because that object is modified, it triggers the view to re-render. Right. So in fact, what's what's happening is still sort of like. Um, Event triggering model update, model update triggering view to re-render. It's actually not that two-way, if you think about it. It's just syntax trigger to make it easier to write.
2: Sure. Aren't there times when, you're, when your event triggers wouldn't necessarily want to re-render, though?
0: Right. So in that case, you just simply use event listeners instead of two-way bindings.
2: So view gives you the options in that case. Yes. So two-way data binding, you know, I realize that you don't love the term, um, but people are used to that term. So with that particular aspect of Vue, you know, Ember famously had two-way data binding, this back and forth push and pull as a uh, kind of a flagship feature early on. And then they realized it's not actually always useful. And so let's allow people to turn it off and on. Um, It's cool that Vue allows that kind of flexibility But when it's on and you're using it, when you have that feature on, are there uh, performance implications that you found with Vue?
0: Okay, so I think I want to take a step back and uh, explain two-way data binding a bit more. So when we talk about two-way data binding, there are two types of things people would refer to, but they often confuse one with another. Mm -hmm. The first is strictly the form, when you're handling form elements, form inputs, uh, this type of two-way data binding is, uh, what, what, like, say, when you are typing into a field and the model updates and um, something something else that's also bound to that property also updates. So this form-based two-way data binding, in my opinion, is just syntax sugar. Mm. There's another type of two-way data binding people talk about is binding a property on this component to to another property on another component and keep the two in sync. And this is the problematic one that a lot of people don't like. Yeah. Um that's why React sort of, you know, talks about how the the data flow should be one way, it should flow from a parent to a child. And that's actually what Vue is doing too. Uh the default uh, the way you pass data from a parent component to a child component in vue is also using a, something called props and it's also one way by default and i think that's that's correct because um uh, a lot of these two-way data two-way binding between components uh becomes hard to understand and reason about uh in that uh these two properties are not the same thing they don't have the same identity yet we try to pretend they have And that's the source of the the confusion here, I believe. Uh So I think the better way to do it is uh, if the two properties should in fact be the same property, then they should uh, in reality be 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 the real same property on the same object. And that object should be the source of truth. And you have two components that observe the same object instead of two components, each holding a copy of that property and try to keep them in sync. Does that make
2: sense? It does. It does very well. I think it tees up very well our next uh, bullet point on your list of um, things inside Vue, which is components. Maybe a little bit different than the component you just mentioned, or perhaps the same. Um, can you describe? I believe this is would be akin to uh, Angular's directives or Ember. I guess they renamed theirs. They, I think, they were views at one point. Now they're components. All these terms. Uh, can you describe components in Vue.js?
0: Sure. So I I believe most of the major frameworks right now have converged on, on components, Mm. right? Angular 2 is built around components. Ember is all about components. Now react has started with components. Right. Um, so I think they more or less, uh, have, we have like, the whole ecosystem have sort of agreed that like the component is a really good abstraction for building user interfaces. Um, and most of the UI can be represented as a as a tree of nested components. Yep. And uh, each component would have its own um, state, have its own view, uh, and should have some sort of logic encapsulated inside of it. Uh, and ideally, you want to build components that's self-contained and reusable. So when you build it and you want to use it elsewhere, um, it should be easy and straightforward to do so. Um so I think that's what uh, a general de- definition of components, mm-hmm. and each framework sort of tackles it in in slightly different fashion. Uh, and a, a view, um, it, it's still pretty simple because um, when you when a lot of people first start with view, the only thing they know is they can create a view instance, right? A view instance is essentially an object that binds a, a raw data object to a piece of DOM.
2: Right.
0: So these type of instances. If you think about it, that's that's a component, right? If an instance can contain other instances, then we have the component tree we want. So that's exactly what Vue is doing. Um, you define a bunch of um, options. Um, you define a component by providing a a bunch of options. For example, you can provide a template. You can provide a function that returns the initial state of that component which is very similar to what React does.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and you can provide other options, such as some methods that component might have. Um, and you can provide computed properties. Um, essentially, it's it's like a class, um, but not exactly a class, but something like that. So when you create a component in view, you call view.extend, then you're passing all the options, and you get a reusable constructor constructor function. You can use that to create components, but uh, it's imperative. So the recommended way is to register the component with a a tag, an HTML tag, a custom element. So uh, that becomes very similar to how web components work, how um, you define reusable web components, you register them as custom elements, and then you can, you know, nest them, compose them any way you want. So The Vue component development experience is very similar to that. Mm -hmm. Um, But on top of that, Vue provides you the mechanism necessary to communicate between the components. For example, you can uh, use the prop system to pass data from the parent to the child. And then uh, components are event emitters, so they can dispatch events. So a parent component can listen to the events on on the child so that the child can somewhat um, notify the parent that it needs to do something, so this this sort of event, like triggering parent actions using events, decouples uh, the the child and parent because the child is only responsible responsible for dispatching the event, and what exactly happens afterwards is up to the parent, and only the parent knows how to uh, mutate its own state in reaction to that event, um, and then. Uh, Vue also implements something uh, that's very closely modeled after the web component spec. Um, there is a mechanism called slots, um, which is previously content. So they recently, the, the spec drafters uh, switched the content hmm. API to the slot API, and Vue implemented that uh, right before 1.0. Um so this, what the slot API does is allow you to compose these custom elements. Uh, so when when you when you use a custom element and you put other custom elements inside of it, um, so that custom element because it has its own template, right? So what should we render? Um, we need to somehow find a way to weave uh, these. Um, Runtime elements inside of it with its own template. So that's what slot does. It allows you to sort of uh, better compose these components at runtime. Um, it, it might be a, a bit hard to explain with words because the mm-hmm. s- slot concept is a uh, is somewhat hard to explain, I guess. But uh, <laughs> but what it does is is make components more composable. That's all it yeah. does, right? So we solve several issues first is how do we pass data from parent to the child and the second issue is how do children notify their parents something has changed uh without directly coupled being directly coupled to the parent
2: right. and the
0: third question is how do we compose different components uh, at runtime so um if we can solve these three questions then we get a pretty good system where it allows us to you know build up more complex interfaces with these small building blocks. And uh, this is very similar to uh, what, I believe, what the web components people want us to be able to do eventually. And it's, it's in fact, I believe, very similar to what Polymer is doing. The difference being that um, Vue is not uh, specifically tied to, uh, to the spec. Uh, it doesn't really rely on the polyfills. Um, so uh so you don't need to worry about say does this browser support this feature do i need to ship the polyfill or not uh and you don't need to worry about it having inferior uh inferior performance on an older browser simply because it it doesn't support certain features.
2: Well once you have all those components uh set up and they're decoupled but uh nested and they're all ready to be used mm-hmm. what developers like to do is you know share them with themselves and with their friends so Right. Uh, looks like you got some of that built in as well with modularity. That'll be our next topic. We do take another sponsor break at this point. Sure. Um, but on the other side, we'll talk about modularity, animations, and stability. Be right back.
1: Braintree is all about making developer lives simpler with code for easy online payments. If you're searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. For mobile app developers out there, the Braintree B.0 SDK makes it easy to offer multiple payment types. Start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, traditional credit cards, and whatever's next, all with a single integration. Enjoy simple, secure payments that you can integrate in minutes, and developers, they've got you. Don't worry about taking days to integrate your payments. With Braintree, it's done in minutes, and if you don't have time, Give them a call and they'll handle the integration for you and walk you through it. Braintree supports Android, iOS, and JavaScript clients. They have SDKs in seven languages, .NET, Node.js, Java, Perl, PHP, Python, and Ruby. And their documentation is comprehensive and it's easy to follow. To learn more and for your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free, go to braintreepayments.com
2: changelog. All right, we are back. Let's talk about modularity. Once you have your components, Evan, how do you bundle them up and distribute them?
0: Right. Um, So currently, I think the the mainstream way of uh, organizing and building your web projects is uh, using modules, right? Everyone uses modules today. So it's either CommonJS, AMD, or ES2015 modules. Uh there are a lot of ways to do it but uh the preferred way with VueJS is to use either webpack or browserify. So that indicates we want to write our uh components as commonjs modules. Um but thanks to the transforms in these ecosystems so you can mm-hmm. use either um babel babel loader or babelify but both uses Babel to transpile your uh, ES6 or ES2015 code into plain JavaScript. So you can use ES, ES6 modules, too. Um, and, and Vue also, when you use Vue with Webpack or Browserify, there are two uh, Vue-specific tools. With Webpack, it's called Vue Loader. With Browserify, it's called Vueify. So these two do the same thing. They tr- they allow you to write your view components in, uh, in a view-specific format. It's called a single-file component. As I would call it, it's very similar to Web Components 2. Essentially, in the same file, you have a style block, you have a template block, and you have a script block. So you have the three parts that's necessary that makes up your component. Um, because... Um, I think I think back then, back when we uh build applications with Angular or some other client side frameworks it's very common for us to to group to structure our files based on the extension right you put all the html templates in the same folder then you put all the style files in the same folder then you put all the javascript in the same folder but in the end uh like I came to the, the conclusion old days. Yeah, yeah I came to the conclusion <laughs> like you you shouldn't do that right they should The bad be, old days they they should be grouped uh based on uh what what they are about right you have uh-huh. you have a um you have a f- template you have a script file you have a javascript that but they are all related to the same uh a mm-hmm. feature or functionality in your app for example um this this button that you're building right the button has its template, has its logic, has its styles. Why should they be separate? They should just be in the same file. So you you have this single file that represents your button component and you can just, you know, put it around. Um, I think, I think that's powerful. uh, And I, and I think it makes easier for you to, to think in terms of components and develop components. And uh, web components is a step in that direction and obviously a source of inspiration. And, I think React sort of does that too, but in the way of shoving everything into JavaScript right. uh, you write jsX and styles in JavaScript so that it's a single file but the the, the idea is the same right so every component is, is in its own file and you um, it, it makes these things much easier to to think about and to to organize um, and the good thing so so people may may ask why do you invent another Component format, why don't you just use web components? The answer is because view components are transpiled using Webpack, it, you get to leverage the full power of Webpack. So you can use pre processors in the, inside your view components. So if you want to use SAS, LESS, or um, Stylus for your style inside a view component, yes, you can do that. Or if you want to write date templates for your view components, yes, you can do that. Uh, or if you want to u- use CoffeeScript for all your scripts, yes, uh, by all means. So um, that's the beauty of it, right? You have, um, you have the same uh, format for your components, but you also have the freedom to use all the preprocessors that you like inside of it. Uh, and in the end, because uh, what ViewLoader does is essentially it extracts out each part of your component, pipe them through the appropriate loaders that should be used, for example, if you write sas in your component, it will pipe it through the SAS loader to process it, and eventually it assembles all the parts back together into a common js module that then these modules eventually get bundled together to become your app um, and I think that makes it just um, so so when you use Vue components, you don't have to throw away all the tooling that you're familiar with. Uh, you can you can leverage uh, all the community contributions in the SAS community or in in the last community, or you can uh, use the favorite language that you like.
1: So, so you're still doing it the bad old ways, as Jared said, and and it's uh, when you when you run VueLoader, it's dumping it into a single file, it's kind of processing, as you said, through the SAS file through different compilers. Are you still writing it the old way?
0: Uh, no. Like this, all happens in memory. It's like the um, Webpack is responsible for doing that. It's all hidden to you. You don't need to worry about that at all. Uh, all you need to do is just author your components and Webpack is responsible for assembling it together into a final bundle.
1: Gotcha. And the, mm-hmm. these comments in the file, is that what, what allows the delimiter essentially to happen to, to make that possible?
0: Uh, those comments are totally optional. Uh, the way you uh, indicate your preprocessor, if you scroll down, you will see uh, you provide the LAN Attribute on your template or style blocks to indicate the language you're gotcha. using. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yes. And in addition to that, uh, Vue doesn't really use Shadow DOM because it's uh, not a stable feature yet. But Vue provides a mechanism to simulate scoped styles. Uh, so if you add a scoped attribute to your style block, Vue will uh, do some uh, extra work on your styles and your templates. It rewrites them so that your style is encapsulated to the current component only. It doesn't affect other components.
1: You also mentioned syntax highlighting. Can you break down how I guess that's possible? I'm not seeing how, I guess, you have one single file with many different languages in it, and it's still, you know.
0: Right. Uh, that's that's really just providing a special view syntax highlighting file. Uh, I have a, a view.tm language, which is the syntax highlighting uh file that's format that's used by Sublime Text, but there are people who uh, have converted to use with Atom to gotcha. uh,
1: other editors. So you're supporting the, the one for Sublime Text that essentially a .view file, you can mix CSS, SAS, whatever you want to choose, JavaScript yep. and HTML, Jade, whatever you choose for front-end languages. You can do that with Vue and you maintain that yourself. Exactly. Okay.
0: Uh. uh well, it actually allows... So, when you use a syntax highlighting file, like you can actually just like declare, say, this block, we should include the syntax for another language.
2: I was just gonna ask you that. That's pretty <laughs> awesome, because otherwise you're maintaining like six languages across yeah. a single syntax. Yeah.
0: That, that's how you do it in HTML, right? Like you can right. embed JavaScript and CSS in HTML. Same thing. So uh, the in fact, the view syntax highlighting file is a modified version of the HTML syntax highlighting file. All it does is uh, detecting the special language attributes in order to pulling a different
1: syntax rules for that block. Wow. That's that's interesting. because you get to keep the tried and true syntax out there, you're not creating something new. Yeah, exactly. And then you're leaving an attribute to sort of toggle back and forth between languages. Yeah. Jared, your favorite word is up next, hot reloadable. What do you
2: think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no comment on that. But go ahead and tell us about hot reloadable there, Evan. Sure.
0: Um, yeah, so when you use uh, Webpack to build your view components, uh, you will notice that if you uh, build up your Webpack dev server in hot mode, which enables the hot module replacement API, and then when you edit your view component, say you change the template or you change the style, the page doesn't reload, it just swaps whatever has changed onto the page. Um, so it, it even keeps the current state of your application. Um, it's, uh, so obviously this has to, like, goes back to React hot reloading that's popularized by, uh, Dan, Dan Abramov. Um, so he, his demo at, uh, ReactConf Europe showing all the, like, time travel, hot reloading of... I think he was the, he, he's the original author of the React hot loader, and then he went on doing all those hot reloading-related work, which is super inspiring and that's what kind of in, like trigger me to investigate is it possible to make view components hot reloadable uh and turns out they are uh it's not as uh it's not as perfect as the react hot reload because when you reload a component it will actually uh reset the state on its child components but it doesn't affect the state outside of it but it's still it's still good enough because a lot of time it's frustrating for you to have to edit a single CSS attribute and have to wait for the app to, mm. to completely reload, then for and especially if it's um it's affecting a component that's like only visible after a few interactions, it's super frustrating.
1: How do you deal with like uh, things like the the compilers being slow? I'm thinking like SAS. Recently a lot of hotness around that is libsass and it being faster mm-hmm. to compile. So if you got a big, you know, CSS stack, for example, then you might be mm-hmm. delayed on the actual compiling of SAS. How do you deal with that?
0: Uh, the good part is uh, Webpack basically handles it for you. Uh, Webpack uses uh, a lot of uh, advanced optimizations, incremental rebuilding, and it caches each module it compiles. So, say when you are editing a single view component, only only that component will get recompiled. Like all the other components are unaffected. And usually, when we talk about SAS being slow to compile, it's because we are recompiling all the styles for your entire app on every watch. That is obviously going to be slow. But if you're only compiling a small SAS file, it's it's always going to be fast enough. And if you're, you're writing that much SAS inside a single component, you probably should reconsider.
2: Wise words, wise words. Shameless plug. We're having Dan on in a couple of weeks. It's true. Dan Abramov.
1: Ooh. Yeah.
2: So stay tuned for that stay tuned
1: for that flux I don't know Jerry. Should we skip animations and routing we're kind of getting short on time and jump rate right stability. Maybe you can give a, a a one minute version of of what you're talking about in routing and uh animations. Uh-huh. Evan, what do you think
0: uh I can probably skip animation and just talk about routing
1: okay what's what's the most important thing happening here?
0: Right. so um, so view router is optional. Like VJS core doesn't doesn't concern itself with routing, but if you want routing to to build a more single page application like thing, then you should use the router. And the router essentially does all what you expect a client side router to do. Uh, you can either use hash mode or HTML5 history mode. Uh, it has, uh, it's a little bit opinionated in that it maps the routes to components. That's basically what React Router and the new Angular Router is doing. Um, and uh, and because these components, uh, when you switch between components, you can leverage View's own transition system to easily apply transition effects. Uh, you have full, uh, fine-grade transition control uh, for route switches. Like, you can control whether this switch is allowed or should be rejected. Um, and yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Um, if you want to build a single page application, then you should definitely use the Vue Router.
1: So I think we should, uh, before we dive deep into stability, we'll take a quick break. We'll also do our closing questions, but we'll come back and talk about stability. So we'll be right back. I have yet to meet a single person who doesn't love DigitalOcean. If you've tried DigitalOcean, you know how awesome it is. And here at the Changelog, everything we have runs on blazing fast SSD cloud servers from DigitalOcean. And I want you to use the code CHANGELOG when you sign up today to get a free month. Run a server with one gig of RAM and 30 gigs of SSD drive space totally for free on DigitalOcean. Use the code CHANGELOG. Again, that code is changelog. Use that when you sign up for a new account. Head to digitalocean.com to sign up and tell them the changelog sent you. All right, so we're here with Evan Yu, and we're talking about Vue.js. And you know, this is the tailing of this article that's kind of diving the, into the reintroduction of Vue.js, and stability seems to be the uh, you know the ending hook here. And and a quote you put in here, Evan was. A personal project with a question mark seriously question mark so like i i, I guess maybe people don't think it's uh stable what was what's the situation here
0: well um i've uh i've i've seen some discussions where uh in for example in, in a comment thread where people say hey i think VJS, vjs is nice and then there will be that guy basically jumps out and say Hate oh them. it's 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 just a personal project uh, you know dying a year uh, guy <laughs> right um and yep. you know some people just like knowing a project is backed by a huge enterprise of a full team of people working behind it uh that gives them sense of i i don't know maybe just feel makes them feel safe i don't know um I agree, it's important to think about how stable the, the software you, that you use to build your product upon, but um, sometimes, you know, whether it's a personal project or not may not be the deciding factor because we know there are a lot of great personal projects that stands out, like Backbone or CoffeeScript are both personal projects by Jeremy Ashkenas, and he has like more than one of these type of projects, right? It's
1: amazing. Um, Mm -hmm. and
0: so many people use it. Um,
1: I don't get the situation with that because I think, Jared, help me out here if if you agree, but I think it's over the last few years that's become a thing where people feel more comfortable with frameworks that are backed by, as you said, some sort of enterprise. But, you know, open source began as all personal hobbies to a degree, and a lot of the open source that we use daily, um, you know, Linux, for example, was a personal project. And look how many people use that. Right. You
0: know, and yeah. I mean,
2: that's that's the impetus of what open source is. I don't get that statement. Right. It's business risk. You know I mean? More and more businesses are coming to open source and seeing the light with regards to uh, licensing costs and uh, maintainability and these things. Oh. And, you know, they're all about risk assessment, right? Like, wh- what's our risk here? Yeah. And they find that open source actually reduces risk because you do have access to the source code for instance but they're coming from a place where they're used to proprietary software right um they you know they have money to spend on things like support and just you know wanting a company to be there um so i get both like i get it from both sides you know as even as an individual uh, software developer um who's just been in the startup scene for long enough like i i don't love fly by night things um mm-hmm. you, you know you think of Uh, services you're going to start relying upon like what if slack just disappeared now that we're all you know loving it that kind of would suck um you know that'd that'd be a disruption to us and so there's it's risk averse averse i don't know the word um adversement yeah it's just being averse to risk and thinking that a single developer project is riskier than something that's backed by a corporation which it is but um, I think as you said in your post here, Evan, yep. you're proven by your track record. Um, yeah. And the fact is that you've been maintaining this for multiple years, and you've reached a stable 1.0, and you have 100% test coverage, and you go through reasons why you are uh, somebody that's providing stability in their project. Yeah. And I think that's admirable. I think that would win over a lot of people that have that problem. Yeah. Is that why you've put this here at the close of your article?
0: Yeah. Um. Mostly, this is uh, sort of out of my. Because um, I've been I mean, seeing people talk about Vue uh, quite a lot of times. And this question comes up actually quite often. Like when people f- ask, is this still going to be around in a year or so? Maybe mm-hmm. it's because of the bat name the JavaScript ecosystem has gotten because of so many new frameworks coming out and then just disappear uh, in a few years. Um, if you take a look at To Do MVC, like they're like the survival rate is not that great i would say um some some frameworks are just no longer maintained or things like that so people in general i kind of understand why when they are assessing a new javascript framework and especially if it's a personal one they would think oh like it's it has a high chance that this just not going to be around in a year or so right but um but again i think um it's it's a it's a common first impression, but, sure. uh, but when you really want to, you know, seriously evaluate a project, it's better to look at the, the real numbers, right? Because mm-hmm. everything is public. The, the issues, the commits, you know, the, um, everything that this, this project's gone through is on GitHub. You can just go there, you can see how, how many issues are there, how many bugs are open, uh, how fast are they, uh, are they closed or fixed. Uh, there are statistics for that. Um, and you can look at the commit, commit log to see how often this, this, how active this project is. You can, um, you can look at the tests, see if it's robust, see if it, uh, see the, see the source code and see if the author cares about the quality of their projects, right? Like these are real, like useful information for you to, to decide whether this, this project is reliable and rather than, you know, resort to, um, this is backed by a, by an enterprise. Right, uh, you know, people sort of bet on that, uh, bet on Angular One because of that. But
1: mm-hmm. you, know, you see what happened, right? That's a good point there. So, is it? You made me think of something, Evan. Is there any sort of tool that you know of that you can point at a repo and say, you know, a, a bug issue is opened and close this quickly with a resolution?
0: Yes, there is a site called uh, stats dot com, I believe. Um. Oh. It's, it's a site where you're just typing the repo name, it'll analyze the, uh, how fast uh, issues and pull requests are merged or closed for that specific repo. And I even have a badge on the, on the VJS README. Um, so if you go to, yeah, it's called issuestats.com.
1: Yeah, um, this is
2: interesting. There it yeah. is. Did you know about this, Jared? Can, is this new to you? This is, this is news to me. Very cool. Brand new right here. Wow. Thanks, Evan. No problem. Yeah, uh, I actually learned
0: about this uh, a while ago. I think because Babel, Babel also used this, and uh, Sebastian Babel's author is very meticulous in closing issues,
1: <laughs> and I, I admire him for that. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you mentioned Angular, obviously Google, and look where that turned out. Not that it's in a super bad way, but you know, it's it's had some it's had some hurdles. Long story short, um, okay. with Vue, obviously. You can point issues or issue stats at this and get some good results back. At test coverage, issues closure time, uh, issue closing time, and then also the fact there's no open issues that have re- reproducible bugs, and that's something to sort of tout, I guess, if
2: you're if you're into that. Mm-hmm. I think it's also worth mentioning. And I think probably you know, I think we all know this, and I think many of our listeners know this, but when it comes to like you know is this a personal project? Will this be around, you know, years from now is that you, you're adopting somebody else's software when you're using open source. Right. And that doesn't completely free you of the responsibility of like ever writing any code Doing or something, maintaining things yourselves or, <laughs> you know, that's the beauty. <laughs> yep. uh, I'm not sure what your licensing is I'm probably pretty liberally open source. Evan, what's your license? Uh, it's MIT. It's MIT. So yep. as liberal as you can get, right. Um, do whatever you want with it. You know, here's the copyright. And I can't remember what else. It's about all MIT says. Uh, you can't sue us for anything. You have all the source code of a stable thing. Right. And you're yeah. a software developer or you're a company that writes software or, you know, just you can also help out. Yeah. So, you know, if, That's if, a great Evan, point. if Evan totally is like, I'm done with view, I'm sick of it. I'm going to start this other new thing as, software developers do tend to you know want to chase the new shiny like somebody else can just te- step in and take it over and run it from there or if he's doing it in a way you don't like to you know that's what the fork button's for so right. i think it is risk averse but it's also perhaps a, a little bit of laziness or something <laughs> just gonna put it out there put that somebody out there. I, I wish i'd have researched this before
1: i open my mouth but Uh, Hopefully I can type fast or click fast one of the two. Somebody just tweeted recently um, either to us or something like that. They recently listened to this show and they were like, after listening to this, I can't believe that something about how we build stuff, build businesses on top of open source. I'm going to find the tweet and put it in the show notes. And that's a good paraphrase. Actually, right here it is. It's Nicholas Young listening to the changelogs, the latest episode on Metabase, and realizing I couldn't build businesses without open source. And I think... Jared, to your point of laziness is that, or laziness is that, um, you know, businesses are actually out there, obviously, to create revenue and and do good things for the world. But at the same time, you have a responsibility to give back and not just freeload, you know, and Mm -hmm. and he's right. Today, you probably couldn't build a single business without leveraging some piece of open source. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean just, you know, stand on Evan's shoulders and, and, uh, you know, enjoy it. You know, sometimes you got to get down and carry him a little bit. Right. Good points. Good points. Good points. Well, there you <laughs> that go. being said,
2: no. you, you do have stability. That's it, you've proven that. And um, yeah. just for the record, are you are you gonna give up on view here uh, after the call's over, or are you gonna keep working on it?
0: <laughs> I guess the latter.
1: <laughs>
0: All right,
2: that sounds good. Yeah.
1: So we touched quickly. I know we're we're like getting close on our time here. We got like nine minutes left, but uh, it would be remiss if we didn't at least touch on the interesting things happening with Vue in the, Laravel, in the Laravel community.
0: Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, so just a couple of points that you made that uh, you know we'd like to highlight is that um, Laravel has been picking up Vue at a very fast pace. Uh, it's got, you know I think, over 9,000 stars on GitHub, so you're definitely getting some traction there. And you were recently on Hacker News, and you got actually nice things said about Vue on Hacker News. Um, so what's your secret? Um, but for instance, wow! The docs look great for being ninety-nine percent a one-man <laughs> job. This is incredible. I'm very impressed. If I was an employer, I would hire you. There you go. So, got some good things going for you.
0: Uh, so what's the question? Like, what's the secret?
1: Yeah, what's the
2: secret to yeah getting good comments on Hacker
1: News? That's a on the side, more or less. That's probably a much
0: harder question than I expected. <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh. I guess it's it's uh it's very specifically tied to view because um it's been my baby so I you know, I care about it and I kinda want to, you know, just make it make it as uh as good, as 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 presentable as possible. Like the the point being, um I have a project that people use and people like. So um that's really great, right? Like I I get a lot of thanks from people say, Hey, like, thank you for making this great project. So, uh, that's, that really makes me happy. And that kind of keeps, keeps me motivated and, you know, keep working on you, uh, making it better, uh, writing better docs so people can, you know, have an easier time working with it. I think all of these sort of, um, sort of ends up showing like it's, it's a project built with, uh, um, with care for its users I guess mm-hmm. so um, if you I guess a lot of times some people build really cool projects but um, but they sort of just you know treat it as a um, as a one-time thing they think oh, okay this is a cool project I'll share it but they they don't really plan on you know uh, doing long-term investment into it or like they they're um, or they just simply don't think they want to, you know, go that far to to make it something that um, mm-hmm. that would attract more people. Or maybe they just don't care. But I do care, so I am willing to, you know, write the docs, make the docs look beautiful, or uh, provide examples, help people out, just to make sure people can pick it up and get productive. I think enabling a lot of uh, people who've Hated front end work before to to find it enjoyable. I think that's that's just great.
2: Yeah. Let's take a very specific example of your documentation. You know, we all love to code, but we don't all love to write docs. It's boring. It's hard work. It's it's difficult to do well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy to get wrong. It's hard to write as if you're you don't have the intimate knowledge that you have. You know what I'm saying? So yep. you know, the first thing this person says, anonymous Hacker News user, is, "Wow, the documentation looks great." Um, so, like you said, you put a lot of thought into it. You put a lot of care into your documentation. Can you give some like uh, some hard examples of like things that you did with your documentation that you think it really paid off? Like it was worth your effort, so that other people could perhaps put that kind of care into their projects.
0: So, before that, um, before 1.0, the old docs is um, kind of accumulated over all the process from like back back in the days of the initial release all the way up to point twelve. Um, so before the 1.0 release, I did a complete rewrite of the docs, um, basically rewriting the whole guide. Uh, just trying to take a step back and think about what would a, assuming someone who's never worked with Vue before, someone maybe even just a, you know, uh, hardly familiar with JavaScript, and they're just picking up the framework. Um, what would they have to go through to be able to build something with it? I think that's the most important thing I think a lot of uh, technical documentation uh, not essentially failing but like they they don't really recognize the fact that um, a lot of users start reading the documentation without all the context and information you have as the author of the library so you have to sort of kind of like when you're designing a product you have to put yourself in the position of of the user in order to uh, to write a doc that makes sense for them. Um, so I also really value what people like make when, when people make suggestions, Hey, like this part is confusing. Maybe you should add an example here or there. Uh, I really like that type of feedback because it helps me to, you know, the next new user who, who read the doc will, would don't have to deal with that confusion. Uh, so I always take those suggestions really seriously and just put them into the doc. Um. Other than that,
1: so care basically. Uh, yeah, care about what like you're doing. Put
0: yourself in the yeah. Put yourself in the position of uh, someone who's never used your library before, and don't assume that they know this or that. Like all these advanced concepts, like try yeah, to right. ex- explain things and make sure like. I guess it's easier to overlook sometimes when you assume they're they're already familiar with one thing, so you just jump right ahead into something that builds upon that concept, it, then your doc quickly becomes harder to follow.
2: Yeah. I think one thing you've done that's really awesome is your examples. Um, so just for that initial, like before I even get to the API documentation, I'm usually looking at examples. Like uh-huh. what can I do, and how hard is it to accomplish a few things? And you have a nice page where there's about Ten or so examples on the left hand side, and they're uh, of varying difficulties and complexity. It starts off with like, you know, a little uh, tree view here. You have a Markdown editor, which is surprisingly brief uh, to implement, and then you all the way down to like your to do MVC example um, and a Hacker News clone. And then on the right hand side, you have basically an embedded JS Fiddle, which is showing you here's the HTML you got to use, here's the JavaScript, here's the CSS, and it's just a nice way to provide um, an obvious and outright example of like, what do I got to do to accomplish this thing? And that helps me decide like, okay, I, do I, do I, or do I not want to spend the time to to dig into the API documentation? Mm-hmm. I think, um, uh, that was really impressive to me. And I think probably is something that is worth emulating.
0: Yeah. Uh, I had, um, when I first released VJS, uh, that was in February, 2014, um, I had a blog post talking about the first first week of launching it. And uh, from the Google Analytics, uh, I think over half of the traffic landing on the site directly went to the examples after landing on the homepage.
2: Mm.
0: So, yeah, I think that sort of echoes what you just said.
1: How common is it, Jared, that you know? I mean, I never really paid much. I mean, I guess I pay attention to it, but how often is an examples navigation item at the top level is it always there for most projects
2: like this were you surprised it was there i mean um no not that there was an example section but i was surprised at when you get there it's a single page that's very easily you know exactly what you're looking at usually examples are kind of like long right i don't know just it's just put together in a way that's like outright and obvious which I think stands out and you know it's nice when you're working with JavaScript for instance where you know it's all web technologies. so yes you can just embed everything that you need to right here into the same page and then show how it renders which is awesome so you know he's making good use of JS Fiddle some projects don't have that um, advantage but people have started to get more creative I know animated GIFs are becoming more useful as people showing like here's how my command line tool works Right. Um, and those are great for little you know getting people to see the payoff of why would I invest time into using this thing right away? Yeah. I
0: think a good example is uh, it's hard to explain hot reloading without a gift.
1: (laughs) There you go. Some would say that's true. Some would say. Well, all right, Evan, well, it's, uh, it's time to close out the show. I know we've been uh, certainly enjoying this conversation with you, Um, but we, we can't close the show without asking you who you're, your programming hero is okay
0: so um yeah there are there are many of them like at different stages of like when you program i think you would have different heroes along the way right um to advance might be an old school one yeah definitely to advance was definitely one of them um and then when i was at parsons uh zach lieberman was someone i looked to looked looked up to a lot uh in case people don't know, Dak is uh, the author of Open Frameworks. Uh, it's plus C++-based C++ creative coding framework. Uh, tons of crazy artwork produced with purely code uh, made with that framework. Uh, so if you're into creative arts with uh, combined with computer science, something you should check out. Um, and then when I first stepped into JavaScript and all of that, um, uh, the people at Data Arts Team, Google Data Arts Team, Aaron Cobling, uh, is probably uh, another uh, big hero of mine. Uh, he was uh, he was the team lead of the the Data Arts Team. Uh, they did a lot of Chrome experiments when when Flash was dying. It was it was them showing people, hey, HTML five can be capable of fancy stuff too. So um, that was pretty. Pretty important, <laughs> and uh, and then when I was just getting started with Node.js, uh, uh, T.J. Holloway Chuck is uh, really uh, like I was just amazed how could a single person be so productive, like mm-hmm. making so many so many impactful projects in the ecosystem. Um, yeah. I see you're
1: a fan of stylus too, with your Hacker News example. So, yep, yep.
2: Next question is, what is on your open source radar? So it doesn't necessarily have to be view related, although it could be. But if you had a free weekend and you were just going to pick up some open source and check it out or hack on it, what's on your radar?
0: Um, I would probably play with... So something I want to, but haven't had time to play with, um, Elixir uh, and the Phoenix framework. And uh, cl- the, the closure script stuff, Omnext uh, next would mm-hmm. be one of them. Um, yeah, I think uh, I, I think current, currently my interest would uh, I would really be interested to just play outside of the JavaScript ecosystem and just you know, because oftentimes we, we take good ideas from other languages and ecosystems and we learn from each other. So I think that's pretty
1: important. You said Omnext, um, next, right? Yeah, okay. not I'm, um. Um, um, we'll get that in the show yeah. notes for those of you listening. Uh, anything else, Jerry, you want to mention before we close out the show? Not a, nope. not a, all right, Aaron, how about you, or uh, Evan, not Aaron, Evan, my <laughs> bad. <laughs> anything on your side you want to close out with? Uh, anything else you want to mention about view your interests, open source, if you had the ear of the community about open source, what would you sh- share back with them?
0: Um, I don't know.
1: Any advice?
0: Advice? Uh, I think, uh, I don't know. I'm probably not senior enough to give advice. Yeah, don't uh, take my words. Use your code. Yeah, use my code. There you
2: go. go. One more thing we'll link out to in the show notes. Um, There is a repo called Awesome View, following the awesome-star meme of repos, Uh where all sorts of things related to Vue, including a nice list of uh, people using it, Ajax libraries, those kind of things. So if you're interested in Vue, obviously check out the website, check out the, the awesome docs he's put together, but uh, check out this awesome dash view as well. And you'll have all sorts of inspirational related things. There you go.
1: And with that, that is the uh, the close of our show. We uh, we try to keep it, uh, we're, I'm kidding. We're not keeping it commuter friendly. This is not commuter friendly show <laughs> at all. <laughs> <laughs> we ditched that idea. We ditched that a long time ago. You know, we used to do shows that were like 30, 45 minutes long. Uh-huh. And and people were just like, It's it needs to be longer. You know, like they, we would get oh, into really? conversations and end them prematurely. And so here you go, a seventy five minute show at least. And uh Oh well, yeah, that's that's long.
2: You can call it commuter friendly in LA, yeah, or something. There you, go. you know, we get that two-hour commute. So,
0: you know what? I used to take a 75-minute commute when I was uh, working, a, working at Google. Like, I live in Jersey, and I have to do the, catch the bus to go into the city every wow. day. Wow, that's like 75 minutes one way.
1: Yeah. So there you go. You must be a fan of the change love then. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Remember, I was the first one to. You pay were, me? and thank you so much for doing that. That was so awesome. Like we threw it out there and we're like you know what this is our open inbox and so for those listening you can go to github.com slash the changelog slash ping and go to the issues you'll see a bunch there and if you go to issue number one you'll find evan's original mention of view and that actually hit uh, changelog weekly and the issue number for that was issue number 24 which shipped on february 15 2014 so that was a cool issue and and like view made it into there so if you Listen, or you know, if you, if you read Changel Weekly, then you, you, you got that back in the day. And we even linked to those examples we talked about earlier in the show. So, uh, but with that, fellas, uh, we do have a couple sponsors to mention. We got Code Ship, OpBeat, Braintree, and also Digital DigitalOcean. Uh, but that is it for the show. Thanks also to the listeners for listening to the show and Evan Yu for sharing so much and being one person making an awesome project really shine and being a good example of how to do it. So thanks for coming on the show and uh, let's say goodbye fellas. Goodbye. Thanks for coming.
0: Thanks for having me.